Uh, that's where we're going to be here in a second in First Kings, uh, actually chapter 17. But did you guys all survive the start of school this week? I mean, most of you are here, so I guess you did survive, but it was crazy for us personally. We came back, Sarah and I and the kids, we were in Colorado last weekend visiting her family, and we came back Monday night at about 11, and that was probably a bad idea because... I mean, the next day, Tuesday night, we had two kids open houses. I had a, I had a um, elders meeting Wednesday. We had another like pop-a-lock type thing or something. And I had a meeting that afternoon. Thursday, we had like, and I can't get over this one yet, high school, okay? Knights charge, ninth grade, no one's high school. I can't believe I have a high schooler. Um, and just things every night this weekend we had stuff. So probably about a bad idea to go to Colorado right before all that stuff happened. Uh, but we made it through and got back. But while we were in Colorado at Sarah's dad's house, uh, I went to get a drink of water one day and reached up into the cupboard to get a glass. And I pulled out a glass and it said, obviously it was a birthday present because it said vintage 1958, which is his birthday. And vintage, that word... Vintage, it, it comes, really, I think it comes from like wine, like vintage wine and when it was bottled and all that sort of stuff. But it's kind of been a word that we have adopted into more common vernacular that just refers to like classic or just kind of old school. It's just like, this is how it is. This is, you know, throwback, just, just very, very classic. So you got vintage cars, you got vintage jeans, you got vintage t-shirts even today now you have like vintage video games like atari and all that sort of stuff all these things that are that are vintage this morning we're going to take a look at just vintage yahweh vintage god yahweh is the hebrew personal name for god and we're just going to see god just classic god and how he works and who he is and how he works so often in ways that are bewildering to us ways that befuddle us we don't see why he's doing what he's doing but he's doing something as we've talked about so often before because we're contained to our little 80 years of life on average and so that's all we can see when God's working across eternity and sees completely what he's doing at all times and so we're going to see this this morning just this God showing his godness. And how even in the befuddlement, he ultimately does all this, Deuteronomy 8.16, to do good to us in the end. And part of the way he's going to do that, particularly through chapter 17, is by working through a guy named Elijah. Right? Now, Elijah is like a who's who in the Bible. All right, major player, like how major on the Mount of Transfiguration with Jesus, who shows up, Moses and Elijah. So big time player in the Bible and, uh, you know, just highlights of kind of what we're going to see over the next couple of weeks. He causes a three and a half year drought. He calls down fire from heaven. He destroys, he slaughters 450 false prophets. He beats, I like this one, he beats a chariot in a 17-mile race. That one's pretty amazing to me as a runner. He performs miracles, he has a remarkable prayer life, he speaks God's word accurately and boldly, and he points forward to the forerunner of Jesus, John the Baptist, but even beyond that, to Jesus himself. This is who 
Elijah is. And so chapter 17 centers around the dual purpose of introducing us to Elijah, who's going to be like on the page all the way from here till 2 Kings chapter 2. Introduces us to us, that's one purpose. But a second purpose, again, just showing off the godness of God. Just watching God be vintage God. Do what he does. As in a lot of ways, 1 Kings 17 reads almost like a God 101 course. Just showing us attributes and work of Almighty God. And so those two things are what we're going to focus in on this morning. And the way we're going to do it, it's going to be very different than the way I normally preach. Normally I try to embed like outline. I like to do application outlining so that the application's embedded in the outline. But the way this sets up for us, I want to just go through the whole story. And as we're going through that, I'm going to kind of focus on Elijah. And then once we've gone through the story, we're going to pull back and, and shift the, the spotlight to the actual star of this chapter, which is God, and look at our vintage God being God and pull out some aspects of who he is and how that applies to our lives. So there's going to be like little snippets of application, you know, hopefully poked through all the way through here, little snippets. And so, if you want to join me, 1 Kings chapter 17, page 299. I do need to give a little bit of context here from what I read. What's going on here is the United Kingdom of Israel has split, right? David and Solomon, then after, after Solomon's sons, it's split. So you've got two kingdoms now. The northern kingdom is confusingly still called Israel, all right? The southern kingdom is now called the kingdom of Judah. And throughout the rest of Kings, we'll be looking at Judah some, we'll be looking at Israel some. This chapter has to do with that northern kingdom exclusively, all right? The kingdom of Israel. And since David and Solomon, there have been seven kings thus far, getting us down to Ahab. Jeroboam set up idols, Nadab was an evildoer, Baasha was a murderer, Elah was a drunkard, Zimri murdered Elah, Omri was worse than all of them, and then Ahab is the worst of all. And that's the king that we're dealing with this morning. He marries Jezebel, and they, and she's from the Baal-worshipping kingdom of Sidonia, and he and she have essentially made the worship of this Canaanite false god of fertility and rain, basically like the state religion. But practically, the people really are just grabbing a little bit of everything to worship. So they'll grab a little bit of Baal, they'll grab a little bit of these other goddesses, they'll grab a little bit of God, and that's what they worship. And so that makes this chapter so unbelievably like today, where... Most people treat religion as like a buffet at Golden Corral, complete with all the gastrointestinal issues that come afterward. And so they'll take a little bit of God, they'll take a little bit of horoscope, they'll take a little bit of TBN and Joyce Meyer ridiculousness, they'll take a little pop psychology, a little splash of conspiracy, garnish it with some political ideology and create this personal cocktail of religion that fits their own palate. And while they might want God at their death, they live life every day as a functional atheist. Functional materialists with no real allegiance to God. No real allegiance to Christ. No carrying their cross. 
And as a result of that twisted theology, immorality becomes justified and normalized in our day, just as it was in the day of Elijah, where they called evil good, and they called good evil. That's the context of Elijah. That's the context of us. So let's look at vintage God in the life of Elijah, and then let's think about how we experience God in our lives today. So verse 1, chapter 17. Now Elijah, the Tishbite of Tishbe in Gilead, said to Ahab, As the Lord God of Israel lives, before whom I stand, there shall be neither dew nor rain these years except by my word. And so what's going on? Again, up to this point, everything for for decades, for centuries really, has been tilting towards Baal. And then suddenly, almost out of nowhere, a prophet shows up whose confession of faith is his name. All right, Elijah means, my God is Yahweh. That's what, the, that's what Elijah means. So Eli back there, good name, buddy. My name, my, my God is Yahweh. But what strikes me is like, it's so abrupt. There's no warm-up. There's no introduction. It's just like, bail, 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 bail. Bam, Elijah. And so, friends, let that remind you. We never know what God's about to do. We never know what He's about to do. So don't despair when you see evil on the move. Because God is not idle. He will bring vengeance, he will bring justice in his time, often out of unexpected, unseen ways, like he does here with Elijah. Because again, he just shows up, right? We know nothing about him. It says he's a Tishbite of Tishbe. What's that? Where's that? No one knows. Most people think it just means he's from the sticks. And so when you think of Elijah, do not picture like a, a put-together pastor who has, you know, on a suit and everything looks great. Picture Braveheart. Picture John the Baptist. That's what he looked like. And so he just shows up and with the courage of a lion, he stands before the king and he declares, as the Lord, the God of Israel lives, you might not think he does, but he does. And I stand before him as the Lord, the God of Israel lives before whom I stand. There shall be neither dew nor rain these years except by my word. And so what's happening here is both a fulfillment of the warning that Moses gave to Israel in Deuteronomy 11, that if they worshiped false gods, Yahweh would, among other things, shut up the heavens so that there will be no rain and the ground will not yield its fruit. Deuteronomy eleven sixteen and 17. So that's one thing that's happening. But it's also a direct blow to Baal. Because he's this fertility god, a storm god, who among other life-giving things is the one who supposedly sends the rain. And so God's like, all right, let's see, big boy. I'm going to withhold it. And so he's just like, what's up with that? Come on. No rain. Who's God? I'm God. And so as we think about Moses and that warning, just kind of as a aside almost, when you remember the, the judgments of, of, of God in Scripture are not idle threats. 
If God says he will bring down the proud, punish sin, and reserve fires of judgment for everyone who rebels against him, he means that. Now, he is always open to repentance. Always. Whosoever will. But these are not idle threats. God kept his word of judgment in this text. He keeps his word of judgment today as well. And on the last day, especially. And so anyhow, Elijah makes uh, this announcement. And then verse 2, read with me. And the word of the Lord, so he makes the announcement then. And the word of the Lord came to him. Depart from here and turn eastward and hide yourself by the brook Cherith, which is east of the Jordan. You shall drink from the brook, and I have commanded the ravens to feed you there. So he went and did according to the word of the Lord. He went and lived by the brook Cherith, that is east of the Jordan. And the ravens brought him bread and meat in the morning, and bread and meat in the evening. And he drank from the brook. And after a while, the brook dried up because there was no rain in the land. A little bit of, like, chapter 18 tells us why this is happening. Jezebel's out to kill all the prophets. And so God sends him into uh, this valley of Cherith. And so you have this vengeance from God with the drought that's being poured out on the Israelites. But then Elijah is going to receive special care. But put yourself in his shoes for a minute. He, he had to be thinking, drink from a brook? Didn't you just say it wasn't going to rain? And then ravens, they're unclean. What, what are you doing here? But despite whatever he may have thought, it says, verse 5, So he went and did according to the word of the Lord. Friends, his life was consumed with obedience to God's word, even when it called for radical actions like drinking from a brook and being fed by a bunch of mangy birds. Well, you and I. Is your life consumed with a striving, at least, to follow the word of God? Even when it's hard, even when it doesn't make sense, even when it sounds weird to our culture? I mean, when the culture says, go this way, do this thing, accept this thing, embrace this thing, celebrate this thing, and God says, not so much, who wins in your allegiance? Culture or God? And so he's there, he's in this Cherith Valley. And verse 7 says, And after a while the brook dried up because there was no rain in the land. And so, let's go verse 8 and 9. Then the word of the Lord came to him, Arise, go to Zarephath, which belongs to Sidon. Who's the king of Sidonia? Ethbaal. Baal, you can hear it in the king's name. Jezebel's from there. Arise, go to Zarephath, which belongs to Sidon, and dwell there. Behold, I've commanded a widow there to feed you. And so he's told to go to Balesville, right? That's where he's being called to go in the middle of Jezebel's daddy's kingdom, all right? And so he's told to go to this place, and it is a town that, is, that contains all that that... 
idolatry of Baal uh, went together with. Unholy sacrifices, temple prostitution, all of these things. And God's calling Elijah to go there and stay there so that he might preserve him there. Very much like setting up a table in the presence of his enemies. Once again, Elijah's got to be thinking to himself, what? Did I hear you right? Are you kidding? I'm on the run from Jezebel, and you want me to go to her hometown. You want me to go to where she lives. You want me to go to where she's from, to that kingdom. And then beyond that, you want me to find some random widow and live with her? Because we've got to understand widows... In Iron Age Israel, it might have been more likely to rely on the ravens than to be called to rely on a widow because they had no means of making money. They were abject poverty, striving to just not die from malnutrition. They had no means. That was that culture. And friends, there's a lesson for us here as well through the life of Elijah. Like sometimes in our lives, we struggle to understand, okay, what is God calling me to do in my life? Does he want me to take this job? Does he want me to take that job? Does he want me to go to this college? Does he want me to go to that college? Does he want me to marry this person? Does he want me to marry... What is God calling me to do specifically in this place? But as you walk with God, and here's what I mean by that, like you... You love him, you read his word, you're praying, you're gathering with the church, you're seeking to follow him, okay? As you walk with God, you will find that he will lead you where you need to go, when you need to go there. And so following God is very similar to walking up a staircase in the dark. You know there's a staircase, you just can't see where it's going. But you take a step and you reach out trusting that your foot will meet the footboard. You land there and you do it again. You land there and you do it again. And God will lead you all the way to the top. And so Elijah, he goes, right? He, he heads that way. And so verse 10. So he arose and went to Zarephath, and when he came to the gate of the city, now think for a minute, what's often at the gates of cities in this time, in this culture? Who's sitting there? Like elders and leaders and kings. He doesn't talk to them. He does what God said. So he arose and went to Zarephath, and when he came to the gate of the city, behold, a widow was there gathering sticks. And he called to her and said, bring me a little water in a vessel that I may drink. And as she was going to bring it, he called to her again and said, oh, yeah, also bring me a morsel of bread in your hand. And she said, as the Lord, your God lives, I have nothing baked, only a handful of jar of flour in a jar and a little oil in a jug. And now I'm gathering a couple of sticks that I may go in and prepare it for myself and my son. Listen to this. That we may eat it and die. She's helpless. This is her destitution. And Elijah said to her, do not fear. 
Go and do as you have said, but first make me a little cake of it and bring it to me. And afterward, make something for yourself and your son. Kids, he's not talking about cake. Cakes are like, the bread he's talking about is like basically the size of a Twinkie, but it has no cream filling. It's just bread. Do not fear. Go and do as you have said, but first make me a little cake of it and bring it to me. And afterward, make something for yourself and your son. Afterward. For thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, the jar of flour shall not be spent and the jug of oil shall not be empty until the day that the Lord sends rain upon the earth. And she went and did, as Elijah said, and she and he and her household ate for many days. And the jar of flour was not spent, neither did the jug of oil become empty according to the word of the Lord that he spoke by Elijah. And so this is just another example of faith and obedience in the midst of circumstances that don't make sense. She barely has enough oil and cake to make, you know, something for herself. And he says, make one for me. And she does. And then God keeps his promise to her that it won't run out. I don't, I mean, there may not be a clear picture of what faith is. Faith is staking your everything on the word of God. On his promises. And then watching him come through. And so things are looking up for her. They got food, right? They're not dying. That's a good thing. Verse 17. After this, the son of the woman, the mistress of the house, became ill. And his illness was so severe that there was no breath left in him. That's a poetic way to say he died. And she said to Elijah... What have you against me, O man of God? You've come to bring my sin to remembrance and to cause the death of my son. And he said to her, I mean, she's blind like, like we so often do. <clears throat> I've done something and now God's getting me for it. We'll come back to that in a little bit. And he said to her, give me your son. And he took him from her arms and carried him up into the upper chamber where he lodged. And laid him on his own bed. And he cried to the Lord, O Lord, my God, have you brought calamity even upon the widow with whom I sojourn by killing her son? And then he stretched himself upon the child three times and cried to the Lord, O Lord, my God, let this child's life come into him again. And the Lord listened to the voice of Elijah. And the life of the child came into him again and he revived. And Elijah took the child and brought him down from the upper chamber into the house and delivered him to his mother. And Elijah said, see, your son lives. And the woman said to Elijah, now I know that you are a man of God. And that the word of the Lord in your mouth is truth. And we'll pick up on some more things from here in just a second. But notice when the son dies, what does Elijah do? What does he do? Verse 20, he prays. And then what does he do? He prays again. All right, two prayers. And notice how Elijah prays here. He picks up the woman's distress from verse 18 and turns it into a prayer and pleads from her point of view. He enters into her pain, into her burden, sharing burdens, like we're called to do as believers, as a family of faith, as the church. 
Like this is how we're to pray. This is a model for how we pray for one another. As you're praying through something you see on Facebook or you're praying through the directory, all right? So like today, we're praying for last names that start with the letter L. So as you're praying for these people, for these families, when you do that, do, do you place yourself in their shoes? Try to enter into their anguish and plead like that for them? That's what Elijah is doing here. He feels her hurt. He feels her pain. He feels her burden. And he's going to the Lord and essentially pleading, Lord, listen to her. Answer her prayer. And that's all he did. You see that? That's all he did. Why do we think that prayer is so often the last thing we should do? I do this, 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 and then if it doesn't work, I'll pray about it. The first thing we should do is the most significant thing we can do because we are calling upon the one with omnipotent power to work. We're pleading with him and he answers prayer. That doesn't mean he's always going to say yes to your prayer. His answer might be no because he's smarter than you. And he's up to things that we may not see in our lifetime that are so big. He's got to connect this and this and this and this and this and this to bring about this. But pray. I think the old hymn, we don't sing it a whole lot here. We do every now and then. But the old hymn, I think, says it so very well. Have you trials and temptation? Is there trouble anywhere? We should never be discouraged Take it to the Lord in prayer. We have a God who in covenant hears and answers prayer. One of the most beautiful things, verse 22, the Lord heard the voice of Elijah. And so Elijah just prayed. He didn't do the miracle. He didn't do some hocus pocus, abracadabra, make it come back to life. He just prayed and bowed before the sovereign God and asked him to intervene and intervene he did as he's actually been doing this whole time throughout this whole chapter. And so I now want to swing the spotlight to God, who's just been showing off his godness through this entire chapter. Because, I mean, working through ravens and widows, is that not vintage Yahweh? Just doing things we would not expect. Who else would design the use of unclean ravens and unlikely widows as sustainers of his servant? Excuse me. And so just a couple of things about vintage Yahweh, what he's doing, just doing his thing, doing what he does here. All right. First of all, and you can start writing these if you want to write number one. First thing to write down is God is the God of creation. That is what we see here. He's the God of creation. He's the Lord of ravens. He's the Lord of rain. He controls everything. Psalm 115 verse 3, the Lord is in the heavens. He does whatever he pleases. He's the God of creation. And not only is he the God of creation, his sovereign power over it, but his sovereign goodness and provision in it for his people. And so the second thing we see about God in this text, number two, is he's the God of providence. The God of providence. He provides for Elijah. He provides for the widow here. He provides for the widow's son here. In the first couple verses of uh, chapter 18, we'll see how through very ordinary means, not the miraculous, just ordinary, plain means, human means, he provides for a hundred prophets. 
The point is God provides for his people. And so, friends, you can trust God for your daily needs. That does not mean he's going to roll out filet mignon before you every day. Okay? It doesn't mean you're all going to drive a, a Tesla. Okay? But he will provide for your needs. And he may not do it. Most likely he won't do it in miraculous ways. That's not how he often works. He usually just works through ordinary means. And sometimes those ordinary means might actually be miraculous. And Sarah and I, last week, we were coming home from Colorado. You may have seen this on Facebook. Crazy story. We're, we, we rented a car, rented a minivan for a week, which is expensive. And so we're getting ready to turn it back in. They don't charge you till you turn it back in. They've reserved it on the credit card, but they don't actually charge you till you turn it back in. So we're turning it back in, and we're in the midst of getting all the bags out and trying to keep the kids from getting run over by the other cars that are coming in, you know, and getting all that stuff together. He checks us out. He leaves. And we're still working on getting all that stuff, get the car seat out, all that. And then he comes back and says, sir, can I see your, uh, you know, your whatever it was, ticket again, your itinerary, whatever. I don't remember what we call it. And I was like, sure. And he takes it and he scans it. And he's like, I just gave you a free car. And I was like, what? He said, I just gave you a free car. I just refunded all that. And Sarah and I both looked at each other and we're like, what? He's like, I gave you a free car. And I was like, thank you. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> I got it. so flabbergasted, I didn't know what to say. And he's like, you have a big family. You should spend your money on your family, not on your car. And I was just like, thank you. And then, thank you. Right? God works in very ordinary means. Sometimes it's miraculous, sometimes it's not. But he works, he provides for his people, often in unexpected ways. That's what he does. And no doubt in this text, notice this also, no doubt the prophets of Jezebel ate a whole lot better than Elijah. They probably did have filet mignon while he's getting regurgitated stuff from ravens. If it's like birds feed their chicks, I don't know. That's how I picture it. But I just ruined your lunch. <laughs> but yeah, they're eating good. He's not eating so good. And so Elijah, notice that he wasn't immune to the suffering that the drought had caused. He was in the midst of it as well. But he had the presence of God and the provision of God. And friends, that's enough. And notice also, like with the widow and the provision of flour and oil. It was very much in keeping with the Lord's Prayer, if you think about it. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread. Not our weekly bread. Not our monthly bread. Not our annually bread. Give us our daily bread because when you think about her story it's not like god plopped down a 50 pound bag of flour and a great big jug of oil no just the little bag she had and the little uh, jug she had it just never went empty she was required to trust him for day by day provision and so listen to me god sometimes does sometimes he gives his servants in the bulk okay does that but there are many others who live hand to mouth Paycheck to paycheck. And perhaps that's not best for the flesh and definitely isn't according to Ramsey's solutions. But it might just be best for faith. 
Because sometimes when things are super easy, sometimes, not always, sometimes, we forget from whom all blessings flow. God is a God of providence. So creation, God of creation, God of providence. All over this chapter we see, third thing, God is a God of grace. God is a God of grace. We see his grace being poured out for the helpless and hurting as he first physically saves the widow and son from starvation, right? And just a side note, friends, there's a special place in the heart of God for widows, for the barren, and for orphans. You see all over Scripture how he works through this barren woman, he works through this barren woman, he works through this barren and he's working in this widow's life, and he's showing his supremacy in this widow's life, and he cares for this. I mean, we are all orphans, and he adopts us into his family through repentance and faith in the work of Jesus, his life, his death, his burial, his resurrection. Through that, we have the right to become, John 1.14, children of God. And so there's a special place in the heart of God. Psalm 68, 5, he's the father of the fatherless and a champion of widows. And as we seek to be like him, we will be like that too. We also notice, so we see his saving grace in the life of helpless and hurting. We also see his saving grace poured out on outsiders. Outsiders. Because remember, when Elijah shows up in Balesville, this woman is not a follower of God. She says in verse 12, very clearly, as the Lord your God lives. But then by the end of verse 24, the Lord in grace has saved her spiritually, not just physically. And she confesses that the word of the Lord in Elijah's mouth is truth. And so friends, God has grace upon those he, he chooses to have grace on, including outsiders. This is the point that Jesus is making in Luke chapter 4, and people want to kill him for it. Jesus says, Luke chapter 4, verse 25, But in truth I tell you, there were many widows in Israel in the days of Elijah when the heavens were shut up three years and six months, and a great famine came over all the land, and Elijah was sent to none of them but only to Zarephath in the land of Sidon to a woman who was a widow. And there were many lepers in Israel in the time of the prophet Elisha. We'll get to him in a couple of weeks. And none of them was cleansed, but only Naaman the Syrian. When they heard these things, all in the synagogues were filled with wrath. And they rose up and drove him out of the town and brought him to the brow of the hill on their town, where their town was built so that they could throw him down the cliff. But passing through their midst, he went away. Friends, God is not a tribal deity. He wasn't then. He isn't now. He has a special love for his people, which today is the church. Not some temporary geopolitical people, nationality. The Lord is the God of all nations. And he will have a people from every tribe, tongue, language, and nation. He will. That is going to happen, which means heaven will be hell for white nationalists. It will be a living hell for the alt-right. 
God rescues the helpless. He rescues the outsiders. He rescues those that he chooses to rescue. And let us remember and rejoice those of us who have received his grace. And then let us proclaim that good news to everyone. Because anyone, like there's an exclusivity to the gospel. You must repent and believe. But there's an inclusivity in that it's open to anyone who would repent and believe. Anyone. No prerequisites. After you come to Christ, there's things you should walk in. Before you come to Christ, you just haven't come to Christ. There's no prerequisites. Most Most unexpected people find saving faith in the most unexpected places. And that leads us right into the final observation we're going to make this morning about our vintage God. And that's at number four. He's a God of mystery. He's a God of mystery. I think this is something that we too often don't like. We don't want God to be mysterious. We want to put him in a scientific method box and and define it as, you know, A leads to B and B leads to C, thus A leads to C. Like, but he is a God of mystery. Like verses 15 and 16, just look at the mystery here. Things are going good. The flower's not running out. The oil's not running out. They've been saved from death, the death that the widow was expecting. She thought they were going to die. She's going to make a little bit of bread and then they were going to go die. That's not happening. Things are going good. But then out of the blue, verse 17, probably a baby son, because it's taken from her arms, dies. And she immediately thinks Elijah has come to expose her sin and her son's death constitutes payment for her sins. And I bet every single one of us at some point in our lives has heard that voice in our heads telling us that the problems we're going through is because of past sin in our lives and God's getting us now. I know I've heard that in my head. And while it may be a natural reaction, if you are a Christian... That is, you've repented and believed in Jesus, trusted him for salvation. If you are a Christian, while it's a natural reaction, it's not a biblical one. The storms we go through, and I want you to hear me on this. Again, if you believe in Jesus Christ, the difficulties and hardships and pain you walk through are not because God is angry with you. Does he discipline? Yes. Does he punish? No. Why? Your punishment's been paid. You see that? Your punishment, if you are in Christ, has been paid. Jesus paid it all. He took your place. He went to the cross. The sins that God does deserve to pour out His wrath, He will pour out His wrath, but it's not on you. It's on a substitute named Jesus. And Jesus lived a perfect life. He now gives you that perfection, that righteousness. And you're clothed in the righteousness of Jesus so that God, when, when God looks at you, he sees you as blameless and holy because of what Christ has done, not because of what you've done. And so let me plead for you, with you for a moment, whatever it is you're going through in your life right now, again, if you are a Christian, let go of the lie that God is against you. It's simply not true. You're like, but you don't know what I've done, Joe. I, I, I'm so undeserving, friend. That is the point. 
That's the whole point of the Bible. God delights in showing mercy to people who don't deserve it. That's what he does. It's the whole point of the cross. It's the whole point of the Bible. It's the whole point of the widow here. It's the whole point of the widow's son. They don't deserve it. God graciously gives it. And so even when we face heartbreak and tragedy today, because of Jesus, we can face them knowing not only that God hasn't forsaken us, but that he actually is with us as a loving father. He's adopted us into his family. And discipline, yes. Punishment, no. He doesn't abandon us in our hour of darkness. I mean, here, he's not abandoned them. Centuries, decades of tilting towards Baal, tilting towards Baal, but he's been working. Bam, Elijah's on the scene. So he's there and he's bending everything cosmically and personally somehow to the good. And so if you have placed your faith in Jesus Christ, rest assured you will never be forsaken by God. Will you be exempt from suffering? No. Elijah went through suffering. But you will never be forsaken by God. Why? Because Jesus was for you. And so hang on to that. God's not punishing you. Don't believe that lie. But do believe that God works in mysterious ways. William Cowper probably puts it best. He's a hymnist, great hymnist. Wrote a lot of hymns. He was a guy, he actually came to Christ in an insane asylum. That's where he was at when he came to Christ. Because he was not just suicidal thoughts, he had attempted suicide multiple, multiple times. Slitting his wrists, bleeding out, passing out. Somehow God preserved him. And so as we think about God, work, you know, God is a God who works, you know, he's mysterious. Cowper, in his hymn, I'll just read it to you. God moves in a mysterious way, his wonders to perform. He plants his footsteps in the sea and rides upon the storm. Deep in unfathomable minds of never failing skill, he treasures up his bright designs and works his sovereign will. Listen to these words. May they burn in your heart. May they tattoo your mind. Ye fearful saints, fresh courage take. The clouds you so much dread are big with mercy and shall break in blessings on your head. Judge not the Lord by feeble sense, but trust Him for His grace. Behind a frowning providence, He hides a smiling face. His purposes will ripen fast, unfolding every hour. Listen, the bud may have a bitter taste, but sweet will be the flower. Blind unbelief is sure to err and scan his work in vain. God is his own interpreter, and he will make it plain. Let's pray. Father, we praise you, for you are the great I am. You are... Sovereign over us. You are the God of creation, the God of providence, the God of grace, the God of mystery. On and on, all the attributes we could throw in you. You are God and there is no other. You are God and there is none like you. And as we think about just the cosmic power that you have calling 
the universe into existence by a word. And setting up the flow of orbits and just within our own galaxy, within our own small solar system. Setting up the earth so that we don't burn or freeze. Doing all of these things, all that you have built in, all our cells, our DNA, all that you've done, how you have intricately designed the world. All of these huge cosmic, cosmic things. And then to thank God that you are concerned with each and every one of us. Personally. You designed us, the psalmist writes, in our mother's womb. Fearfully and wonderfully, each one of us is made. And you care for us. You care for us and you love us so much that though we have rejected you, you have sent Jesus into the world to rescue whoever would believe. And so, Father, from today, Father, I pray that you would stir those of us in this room who have not trusted you as their Lord and Savior to be bothered, to not be able to get away from this fact that we have sinned and we are separated from you with no hope in ourselves. We cannot save ourselves. And outside of repentance and faith, we are destined for an eternity of hell. But in you, there is plenteous grace. And there is healing and there's wholeness, and there's salvation, even in the midst of difficulty, and pain, and lament, and long-suffering. Teach us to hide ourselves in you, and know your presence and your promises. In the name of Christ we ask it, amen.